Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. When I started working with filmmakers, you know, way back in the day, I discovered the house party and I realized it was a really powerful way to get money. So much more powerful than fundraising events, which often are disappointing. What happened was uh, I realized that there was a science to it, a way to do it that would always work if you did it right. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 113, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and the Independent Doc Filmmaker Essential Checklist, our free eight-part course designed to help you achieve financial stability, gain support, and effectively distribute your documentary film. In our last episode, I was joined by my wife and co-producer of the show, Stephanie. Among other things, we talked about how we were in Cambodia working on finishing our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia, and that we're currently raising completion costs for the film and ensuing screening tour for here in Cambodia. And we talked about how we were going to be sharing some of these fundraising experiences over the course of the next few episodes. In part, we're doing this in response to the success of our Chris in Cambodia segments, which ran during the first nine episodes of season two. We're also doing it because it allows for the unique opportunity of sharing in near real time the making of a very particular aspect to doc filmmaking that many of us can learn from. In this case, fundraising for one's documentary film. So with that, why don't I start by sharing a bit of last week's adventures. As mentioned in the previous show, I headed down to the capital city of Phnom Penh. So much of Cambodia's business, not surprisingly, emanates from this hub. Companies, NGOs, other nonprofits, all can be found here in Cambodia's most populated city. A city that is also closest to what a Westerner might typically refer to as a city, if that makes sense. Which brings me to a point I'd like to make early on here. As I share some of these experiences and tips for fundraising for your own doc projects, I am well aware that Cambodia is not like what many, if not most, of you will be experiencing as you raise monies for your own films. For one, there are sometimes massive cultural differences to take into account. But that being said, there is still a ton of applicable information to be informed and inspired by, see what I did there, for any doc filmmaker no matter where they might be doing their filmmaking and their fundraising. Take for example my approach to last Monday, day one of Phnom Penh if you will. Prior to the week, I had been in email contact with some leads that I garnered from other industry people in Phnom Penh and some of my own contacts that I'd built up over the years. I had some meetings that were set up for the week. The biggest, perhaps most critical one, at least initially in this fundraising endeavor, wasn't until Tuesday. In fact, I had nothing on the books in terms of meetings set for Monday. So what did I do? Probably the hardest, most unnerving, least desirable thing I'll ever do in my independent filmmaking journey. I started making cold calls. 
Actually, even more daunting than that, these weren't even cold calls in the pick up the phone variety. The kind of cold calling that I was referring to was literally me walking into a place of business and pitching my film and trying to sell corporate sponsorship slots. Now, backing up for just a second here, we decided that the best way for us to make much of this funding needed for completion of the film, which by the way is 42k, not an awful lot in terms of overall funding for any film, but a sum of money nonetheless, right? We had decided that the most likely avenue for garnering much of this money was through corporate sponsorships with Cambodian companies. Now, we'd already run a successful Kickstarter campaign back when we first started on our film raising 20000 at that time. And we'd also raised a bit more, putting on a couple of fundraising events. And we'd raised some more through a handful of larger individual donors. All very viable, doable forms of raising funds for one's own doc. Now, we didn't want to run another crowdfunding campaign, and we'd somewhat exhausted our individual donors, and we weren't interested in putting together any more fundraising parties. So we decided upon the corporate sponsorship route, which was something that we'd done in the past with other films, but hadn't really done on any scale with Elvis yet. And truth be told, like I said at this point, it seemed like the most viable option for our film. We were doing a documentary film about one of the most important cultural icons in the history of Cambodia. Every Cambodian, regardless if they were living in Cambodia or as part of the larger diaspora around the world, knows who the main subject of our film, Sinsi Samut, is. And more than that, every Cambodian loves he and his music. He is the beloved of the beloved, if you will. And therefore, we have been pretty confident that companies were going to be able to get behind what we were doing. And certainly, when we went on our screening tour out into Cambodia. So basically, I was walking into the doors of Cambodian companies. And again, I'm talking unannounced here. And heading up to a front desk, introducing myself, and asking to speak with someone about my film, about Sinsi Samut. Now, was this daunting? Yes, of course. Was this an awkward thing? There can be no doubt. Would this be a foolish, if not probably downright insane way to do things in the majority of the Western world? Most likely, abso-bleeping-lutely. But of course, this was part of the beauty of being a Westerner in a developing country who speaks a bit of conversational Khmer, who is touting that he and his wife are making a documentary film about perhaps the most beloved figure in Cambodia. If nothing else, the person that I'm speaking to is going to be intrigued at this funny-looking foreigner dude wearing a traditional Cambodian scarf who's waving his hands around, singing bits of Sunzi Samut songs, and motioning with his hands the act of rolling cameras. Okay, it wasn't quite like that. I'm exaggerating a bit, maybe less than a bit, but I wanted to illustrate a little of what this whole thing looked like. And often, it was met by some kind of positive results. The receptionist would ask if I'd had any appointment, to which I'd politely smile and say, why no, I don't, but, but if I could just speak to your director of marketing or sales, to which they'd generally respond by making a call, having a short phone conversation, asking me to then wait in their lobby and that someone would be down soon to speak with me. And usually, within about five minutes, someone would come down and have a brief conversation with me. Generally, these conversations lasted a grand total of five minutes, where I would briefly describe who I was and what I'd been doing in Cambodia for many years, 
I'd give my elevator pitch about the film, and then why I felt that their company might be interested in this historical film and screening tour. Often the person would nod politely, maybe ask a question or two, and then ask if I might email them some more information about said film and sponsorship. Which is when I would then ask the name and contact of the person responsible for making such decisions as corporate sponsorship. Usually they would give me the name and position of that person, but would not give me their direct email contact. Although a couple of times they did but said that they would be passing the email on to the appropriate person. Basically, and understandably so, they were going to receive my emailed information and then decide whether or not they should be passing this on to their boss. Again, usually a director of marketing or sales for the company. I'd then thank them for their time, pass my business card on to them, and make sure that I got a card in return as well as any other relevant contact information. I would be needing this later for not only my email follow-up, but for any future follow-ups or even potential future unrelated films or business. Again, would you be able to simply walk into a corporate office in the US or the UK or Australia and do a little song and dance to which you then ask to speak directly with a marketing or sales person? Probably not. You might even get arrested for such a thing. However, there are definitely things that you could be doing that are similar to my approach. For one, you can be sending out initial emails to companies. In these emails, you would briefly introduce yourself, your project, and why you thought this particular company would want to be a part of your film's journey. And that's important, by the way. Making someone feel like it would be in their best interest, or their company's best interest, or their honor to be a part of your film project. That you're giving them an opportunity to be a part of something important. In my approaches this past week, I always was sure to comment on Sinsi Samut and his music. And I'd ask them directly if they liked his music. And of course, I knew that they would respond, of course, yes, they did. And I would point out that no other doc feature had ever been produced about this important Cambodian icon. And that I felt that the mission of their particular company aligned with many of the themes of our film or with our own mission with the film. And by the way, I wasn't lying here at all. I was selecting particular companies that I knew had either supported previous similar ventures or had maybe used Sinsi Samut's music in their adverts, for example. That we both shared a love for Sinsi Samut. Why wouldn't we both want to be a part of the making of a landmark film about Sinsi Samut? Why wouldn't their company want to have a promotional presence, for example, at some of the screenings that we would be having out in the provinces? Now back to emailing. You should be emailing initially, right? And if you don't have the direct email to a member of the marketing or sales team, do your Google diligence and find the most appropriate person in that company to email to. And if need be, ask that person to pass on to another maybe more appropriate party. And then after this, and this is very important here, after a couple of days, follow up with a phone call. I know, I know, that doesn't sound fun, right? Cold calling a company to try and sell them on corporate sponsorship. But neither does not getting your film made, or certainly made with no money. You've already set out on the Herculean task of making a damn documentary film. So why not make some calls and get some money to do it right? 
Look at it this way. It's not entirely cold calling per se. You've already sent out that email. And you can say that you're calling to follow up on that email to see if they'd had any questions about your film project or proposal. It's not like you're calling selling employee health insurance or office copier leasing services. You're calling about a documentary film. So I can promise you these companies are not taking these types of calls every day. Again, not unlike my reception when walking straight up to the front desk and giving my dog and pony show, they're at the very least going to be interested by this person who has the audacity to email, then follow up with a phone call to discuss a documentary film project with them. I mean, come on, right? Now, the important thing to always keep in mind here is that your object isn't even necessarily to get someone to buy a corporate sponsorship. At least not initially. I mean, sure, if a company is up for that right out of the gate, great. As long as it makes sense for both parties, let's sign on the dotted line and I'll see you at the premiere. But the odds of that are a bit low. So what you're really trying to do here is get eyeballs on your project to the right person. In my case, I wanted to get my project in front of a director of some sort, most likely a marketing or salesperson. This will likely be the case for you and your project as well. Now, it's going to take a little doing, of course. It's going to take persistence. Email and then a follow-up phone call is a great place to start. Then you may have to email and follow up again. If they're interested, eventually someone's going to get back with you with a good morning, sir or madame. We would like to inform you that our director of marketing and promotions is interested in your project. Would you be available to meet at such and such a date and time? To which you respond with your bleep yeah email and book that date and time and go out and quickly buy yourself that badly needed new shoes and tie, print off some new business cards, tweak your work in progress, and get ready to roll into your future meeting and convince that director of marketing and promotions why their company would absolutely, positively, there can be no doubt about it, want to be a part of your film. This is what I experienced just two days after I walked straight into a well-known Cambodian mobile phone services company and asked to speak with someone from sales or marketing, to which the receptionist got a member of the marketing team on the phone with me and I gave my song and dance, to which this member asked me to email more information and that they'd pass this email on to the director of his team. I went home at the end of the day, after I'd walked into a handful of other offices, and I wrote follow-up emails to all of the people I'd spoken with that day. I included a link to a current teaser for the film. I included a link to a page to our website, which had all of the information regarding our corporate sponsorship offerings. And again, two days later, I received an email stating that the director of their team was interested in our film. Could we meet up at this date and time to further discuss the film and sponsorship possibility with he and other members of the marketing team? Now this happened from my coldest of the cold calls. I knew no one from the company, meaning you know no one had recommended this company for anything like a corporate sponsorship. And I didn't know any name of the person I should be speaking with, nor did I have any contact information for any members of any team. I simply walked right up to the front desk. Now, as I've just said, I have since followed up with the earlier mentioned positive email, and I've booked a meeting with their team and will hopefully be sharing some good news with you maybe even in our next episode. 
So again, while you may not have the luxury of walking straight up to a front desk and asking to speak with someone directly about your film, there are definitely some ways that you can and should be reaching out to people and companies who might be interested in becoming a part of your filmmaking journey, aka contributing some much-needed funds to your dog film. Now, I've said it many times here over the past three years, and certainly it bears repeating. We are independent documentary filmmakers. And part of being the independent doc filmmaker is making money to make our films and making money from our films after they've been made. If this doesn't interest you at all, and you want to make your films totally on your own dime, and you're only interested in the creative aspects of making your documentary film, and that perhaps money is left to the quote-unquote money people, that's totally okay and fair. That is your choice, right? But I think these days, many of us doc filmmakers, many of us doc lifers, are embracing the idea that a significant part of the independent filmmaking process is also learning how to properly raise the funds for our films and how to build audiences for our films and the kinds of audiences who will want to keep coming back for our films and then how to make some kind of sustainable livings for our films. Personally, I don't think that's too much to ask. It's what Steph and I are doing and it's what we want you to be doing. So, with that, wherever you may find yourself and your doc project, I hope it's bringing you great happiness and fulfillment. And you know what? I hope that this podcast is doing much the same. Thanks again for tuning in. It's great to have you here on The Documentary Life. Something I wanted to mention before continuing on with today's show. You've probably noticed that we're playing around with some pretty cool fresh sounds on this season of TDL. And I'd like to thank Musicvine for supplying us with those cool, fresh sounds. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about how Musicvine might be able to serve your doc project, you can check out the show notes for today's episode, or you can simply go to their website at musicvine.com. If you're anything like me, when it comes to doc film preparations, checklists are an essential part of that preparation. Whether it's putting together a gear list, storyline notes for an edit, or gathering materials for a grant application, checklists are very helpful in ensuring that we're prepared for whatever may lie ahead in our doc journeys. Which is why Steph and I have put together a very special offering for you, a free eight-chapter course we're calling the Independent Doc Filmmaker's Essential Checklist. We believe that given the right strategy and insight, every doc filmmaker can achieve their goals and intentions with their films, that there is money out there for every project, and that every film can be met by an active, eagerly anticipating audience. And that includes yours. This course will take you closer to that outcome. To enroll in the Independent Doc Filmmakers Essential Checklist course, just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. It's free, and just as we do here on the show, this eight-chapter checklist course will inspire and inform you on your documentary film journey.
Maury Warshawski is a consultant, facilitator, and writer who has spent 30 years specializing in the nonprofit sector. His work is characterized by a commitment to the core values of creativity, thoughtfulness, tolerance, and transparency. Warshawski works with nonprofits that are having difficulty achieving their goals. He helps them reach their dreams through strategic planning. We had Maury on the show earlier in season one, and we discussed aspects of one of what I like to call the veritable Bibles of doc filmmaking, his book, Shaking the Money Tree, The Art of Getting Grants and Donations for Film and Video Projects. He also came on, and we were fortunate enough to have him on a live webinar on this topic, which has since been made available as part of enrollment in our Independent Documentary Filmmaker 101 course. And Maury also just so happens to be one of my favorite people in the world to talk on this show, <laughs> which is why I'm, I'm happy to have you back on the show today. Maury, welcome back to The Documentary Life. Well, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Happy to be back. <laughs> I think it was back, you know, as I mentioned in the early days of the show, I believe it was episode number 15, but I probably should fact check that. But it was around then. And and we had you on and we talked about, you know, broader the broader scope of fundraising for the doc filmmaker. Today, I'd love to kind of niche down a little bit and talk about a very specific aspect of fundraising, and it's one that obviously you know a lot about, and that's the fundraising house party. Um, so yeah, love having you on the show to, to talk about that. One of the the interesting, uh, maybe surprising statistics that I learned early on, and you probably mentioned this uh, on the show and maybe even in the web- webinar, is that eighty per, this number of 87%, and, and which is 80% of fundraising, comes from individual donors. And this is obviously holds true for a lot of uh, the nonprofits that you have had so much experience uh, with working with over the years. Do you believe this is true for doc filmmakers as well? And why is this a case? Why is the number so high for individual donors? It's a complicated question because yeah. if you take a look at uh, where money goes and where it comes from, there are different profiles for different types of art forms and different types of artists. So while it is true that if you took a look at the entire pot of nonprofit contributions, 80%, 87% of it does come from individuals. Yeah. If you go back and look at dance companies, theaters, um, music organizations, museums, individual artists, that cut of the pie begins to change. And especially if you start looking at where uh, independent filmmakers get their money, mm. So narrative, the difference between narrative filmmakers and documentary filmmakers is pretty stark. Yeah. And then within the documentary world, there are very different types of filmmakers. So yeah. there are people who make shorts, people who make series, there's social issue documentarians. In the social issue realm, where most of the documentary filmmakers that I work with work, yeah. I can't tell you what the percentage is, but I can tell you that it's gotten higher and higher over the years wow. because of the difficulty of getting money from institutional givers, foundations, and government agencies. The competition for that money is very, very stiff, and it's gotten stiffer. And the entire pie of money available from them has not grown while the universe of filmmakers has grown to, you know, exponentially. <laughs> right. I think the point of looking at that figures is that for a long, long time, documentary filmmakers felt that the only or the best place to get funds was through grants. But that changed dramatically once crowdfunding hit the scene. Mm. And I think it opened everybody's eyes to the potential of getting money from individuals. 
And the other thing, too, is that documentary filmmakers have always been more comfortable writing a grant than sitting in a room and asking somebody for money. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's a factor that you really can't ignore. But but the truth is that there's a whole lot of money available from individuals and that, you know, we should be asking them for money more and more often. Well, it's funny. So you, you mentioned there, you know, that doc filmmakers would much rather maybe put down on paper and ask than actually do it in, doing it in person. But of course, yeah. the most effective way to ask a donor for for a financial contribution to your doc film is to ask. And so you also, though, so so as part of this, though, you kind of have a way around the direct ask, don't you, in the form yes. of this idea of a fundraising house party? Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about a house party from the perspective of the filmmaker because a direct ask is going to be made to real people in a real setting but the filmmaker does not ask for the money mm. someone else does so that that takes an incredible burden off the shoulders of the filmmaker what they have to do is show up at the party and be themselves and sell the film mm. and they should they should be good at that and happy to do it and it should be a natural easy experience for them the ask will be made by somebody else because it's it's more effective that way. That's yeah. why. And and who is the ideal candidate to make that ask? Well, in the house party setting, the rule is the person who should make the ask is the person who is well respected and known by people in the room, uh, and also someone who has or will make a donation to the film as well. So that's the rule. And quite often, that could be the host of the party. Mm. Sometimes sometimes the host is uncomfortable making the ask, in which case you look for someone else. But uh, the rule of thumb is that person should be someone who's known by and respected by most of the people in the room. And then it's harder for, harder for them to say no to them. Yes, right, 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 of course. And and so maybe we sh- I should back up a little bit here, Maury, and kind of uh, – because you're not talking about the fundraising house party where people pay an admission fee or for no. an expensive plate of food, right? So, so no. can you, why don't you give us a def- your definition of a fundraising house party? A fundraising house party is an event where you invite people to come to a home or maybe another setting. I prefer a home. And they know that they've been invited to learn about your project and that they will be asked for money. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. very important. There's no ruse here. They know that if they come, that they should bring their checkbook or cash or a credit card uh, because they are going to be asked for money. That's the fundraising house party. Now, you could have a house party that's friend raising, and that's different. That's when people know that they're going to be uh, informed about a a project, but that they will not be asked for money. That's a a different party. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh, And it's not a fundraising event where people are charged in advance to come. That's a different kind of party as well, although sometimes people try and combine the two. So in reading your book, The Fundraising House Party, one of the things that you made me realize, and, and we've thrown out the terms the host and the uh, the person who does the ask already, and one of the things that yeah. you made me realize in reading your book is that you know I kind of assumed that the person raising the funds needed to be and should be the host themselves. But you made me realize that that is not, in fact, the case. So tell us about the importance of the host and who makes a good host. Who should that host be? Ah, 
Well, the first requirement for the host, the the most important requirement is that they love you, the filmmaker, and they're crazy about the film. Mm. That's square number one. (laughs) If they don't fit into that square, then they should not be the host. It can't be someone who's kind of kind of tangentially associated with the project and says, oh, take my house and throw a party. No, it's got to be someone who says, I believe in you and I want this film to go into the world and make a difference. They have to have that feeling. That's square number one. Square number two is they have to back that up with financial support. Mm -hmm. The host must be someone who has written you a check or will write you a check at the party. Mm -hmm. Very, very important. So it's totally unfair for them to invite people and request that their their friends come to the party and give you money, but they haven't given you money. That that does not work. People can smell that a mile away. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So those are the first two requirements. The third requirement is they have to be willing to open up their house, the place where they live. Not their business, not their restaurant. It should be the place where they live. And it really almost doesn't matter if it's a big place, a small place, a modest place. Mm. The significance of opening up their home has you know, tremendous resonance for people. Mm. It shows a level of deep commitment. So that's like the next requirement, third requirement. The fourth requirement, and this is very, very important, is that they must be willing to invite people that they know. Uh. They have to be willing to open up their address book. If someone says, you can have my house, but you can't invite my friends. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) I'm I'm embarrassed to invite my friends. I feel uncomfortable inviting. No, 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 no. Then it's not going to work. So that's the next requirement. And then after that, I have kind of some, you know, subcategories that would be nice. One category is creating a host committee. And this is a powerful way to make sure that enough people show up to the party and that you actually raise money. And that is you invite the host to invite their friends to create a committee, an invitation committee. Mm. And then the other thing is uh, refreshments and food for the party and creating the invitations. The host may or may not uh, volunteer to pay for refreshments. Yeah. 99% of the time they do. Okay. It's not a requirement, but it's nice if they do. And it's important that you're making a distinction here. I think that people realize that it's truly uh, a refreshments kind of situation. This is not a sit-down meal we're talking about, is it? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate I hate sit-down meals for a fundraising house party. Yeah, tell us why that is. Well, because you're going to sit down and eat. It costs more money. It takes up time. If they're Eating while you're making the ask, that's really uncomfortable. Uh, No. So I like, you know, a party where there are refreshments, but those refreshments are put aside when you make the ask and you go into the room and actually do the deed. So, oh, you got to give people a good 30 to 45 minutes at least to show up, be a little late, to mingle, schmooze, and have food. Yeah. But certainly no more than an hour because the whole event should be less than two hours. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to make sure that you let people out on the time that you announced you would. That's Mm -hmm. very important. They're very time sensitive. But before they show up, a lot has to happen. 
to make the party work. And the first thing is you have to send invitations out to three or four times as many people as you would like to have attend. And those invitations can either be written invitations and or email invites. Yeah. And that a lot of that depends on who you're inviting and your host. Uh, and the invitation itself, the nature of the invitation is very, very important. Yeah. Because you should get money in before the party even happens. You should be making money before the party event happens. That's super important because the invite should have an RSVP that allows people to say, no, I can't come, but I want to donate anyway. And you will get quite a bit of money before the event even happens. Wow. And that invite should be carefully designed uh, by you and a graphic person and or the host. It should uh, have levels of uh, donations that people can make, give them an opportunity to make uh, a donation. You must be able to take credit cards somehow, and you could take them online or take them by the written invitation. And then also the invitation has to make it clear that people should bring their credit card cash or checkbook to the party so that there's no hidden agenda that's very important. So the great thing about doing that is many, many people will not want to come to the party because they're going to be asked for money. (laughs) But the beautiful thing about that is you have self-selected out people who weren't going to give you money anyway. That's right. And that means that that the 10, 15, 20% of the people who do come, not only do they know that they're going to be asked, they're already primed to give you the money. Yeah. Yeah. So that means that at the typical party, 70% of the people who come are going to give you money if you do the party correctly. I I love that. It's a self-correcting environment. Yeah. The the whole process sounds like it already. And then, you know, it's almost it's almost as if it's up to the doc filmmaker, right, or the person trying to raise the funds. It's it's almost up to us not to lose those funds at that point, because that's like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're there and they're there for a reason and they know why they're there and, and, and what's what's happening. They know what the event's all about now. Let's talk about who we should be inviting to these to these fundraising ah, these parties. That's very important. It doesn't matter if you invite people with little money or lots of money Mm. uh, in terms of getting money. Mm. Uh, Of course, you are going to set a goal for for the evening or the afternoon with your host. And that amount depends squarely on the giving capability of the people you invite. But one important rule for the party is you don't want to mix giving capabilities amongst people. So you don't want to have people who can only give $25 in the same room with people who could give $2,000 or $10,000, which is why you might might have to throw a number of different parties. So the the parties should be homogeneous and not heterogeneous. Yeah. So you need to keep uh, the social classes separate at the party. Except except for the artists who are in the room. Yeah, yes, of course. (laughs) Yeah, because it's very – that changes the invitation Mm. and the ask. Mm. So an invitation to people who could only – who are modest givers, your invitation might say, we hope 
uh, here are the giving categories. We, we hope you can you can fit like you know ten to twenty five dollars, twenty five to fifty dollars, yeah. fifty yeah. to a hundred. But your top might be something like a hundred and other. Right. Whereas people who could give a lot more money, you might begin with a floor of a hundred dollars, and then your top amount might be five thousand dollars and other. So that amount depends squarely on the giving capability of the person because you don't want people in a room to be really uncomfortable when you make an ask Mm. and they can't they it's so far above their ceiling they could never think of giving you that amount yeah and then they leave kind of embarrassed and they don't give you anything so you always want to ask for a kind of a little more than you know that they could give but not a lot more so let's talk about, you know, what our responsibilities are as doc filmmakers in these settings. If we're not doing the hosting and we're not doing the asking ourselves, what should we be doing during those two hours? What is our responsibility as the doc filmmaker? Yeah. Well, uh, during the beginning of the party, I call that icebreak time. And during that icebreak time, the filmmaker is circulating around the room with members of their team, possibly, or even people who are being featured in the documentary itself, that can be very powerful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you want to use maximize the use of that time to get people primed and ready and excited. Your uh, producer might be there. You might have the room filled with uh, memorabilia, objects, posters, things that refer to the subject of the, of the film or the film itself, maybe even past films. You might have PowerPoints going on laptops around the room. And your host, of course, is running around the room, introducing people, getting them ready. And then at some point, you move everyone into a room in the house that is set up with chairs. And each chair has a pledge card on it Mm. and a pencil. It's very important that you have a pencil or a pen. I'll never forget. I went to one house party and it was a great presentation. And when they made the ask and there was a pledge cards, there were no pens or pencils in the room. (laughs) And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I've got to remind people about this little thing. Yeah, little detail. It goes a long way. (laughs) They lost a lot of money that evening just because it was difficult to give. But anyway, but there is a rhythm to the party, to the ask itself. And that begins with the host welcoming people and introducing the filmmaker. And then your job as the filmmaker is you've got to get up in front of that room and stretch your stuff. And the heart of that will be showing a short teaser clip, fundraising clip. And, you know, three minutes to seven minutes is plenty of time. I wouldn't do much more than that. And you should show something that gets people excited, yeah. that moves them. Yeah. And the ideal clip is one that makes them cry. <laughs> yeah. So the idea is to exert emotion and make them feel something. But I guarantee if you can make them cry, you don't even have to ask for money. They will just start writing the checks. Oh, wow. Yeah. But anyway, so you show a clip and then you need to be available to answer questions. Allow them to ask you questions. Have a nice Q&A. And that's very important. You want to draw them in at this point. Hear their voices. Listen to what they have to say. And then the person who is going to make the ask, which might be the host or could be a luminary, someone who's well-liked and known and respected by everyone else in the room, 
and by the way, the person who is going to make the ask, you should prime them before the meeting. Mm. It's great to have a session with them where you role play the ask yeah. and help them. I even have a sample script in my book, The Fundraising House Party, that you could use yeah. word for word on. Because that ask has got to be a powerful, direct ask. There's a whole science to the ask. But that person, if one of their jobs is to check the feeling in the room around during the Q&A and know when that should end. And then they stand up and they say, well, thank you, Chris, for this great presentation, for showing us this clip, which was a powerful clip. Why don't you sit down now because I'm going to take over. I need to talk to everybody in this room. <laughs> and then they stand up and they look everyone in the room in the eye yeah. and they ask them to give support. Yeah. And they must make an unambiguous direct ask. Now, there are many ways that ask can go. They might ask for – they might say, look around this room. There are 20 people here. We want to raise $10,000. Yeah. Do the math. That's $500 each. It's got to be a no holds barred ask. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's absolutely great. And I mean, no, no, no beating around the bush, if you will. That's for sure. No, 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 no. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I can't tell you how many parties have lost money because nobody made an ask or they didn't make it direct. They were namby pamby about it. They just said, they didn't say anything. (laughs) They just Assumed because there were pledge cards around the room. People, people knew what to do. Yeah, right, right. Oh, that's, I have so many stories about that. Cannot be shy around that. No, you cannot be shy. You have to make a direct ask. And have someone of ready and available to take pledge cards, to take credit cards, to take cash, yada, yada. And then, you know, say goodbye to everybody. Thank them for coming. But sure, your work is not over now. Yes, exactly. That's right. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, because... Statistically speaking, you can raise another 30% mm. of what you raised that evening by making follow-up calls. Mm. So that's very, very important. I mean, of course, you're going to send thank you notes to everyone who came, even if they didn't give. Okay. Special thank you notes to everyone who gave with a receipt. Yeah. And if that can come from the host, that's the best scenario. If it can't come from the host, then it's got to come from you or the person who made the ask. That's interesting, actually, Maury, that 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 the host should be sending these thank you cards. I definitely would have assumed that those cards needed to come from me or, or in the case of you know the doc filmmaker. So one important principle of fundraising that you should have on your wall is peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer. There's no more powerful way to gain support than when a peer communicates with the peer. Now, you might think you're the best person. You're the best person only if you're a peer. <laughs> right. That's why I tell filmmakers, if they're going to go out on an individual ask, yeah. bring bring a peer, and then you've got a one-two punch that's hard to resist. Uh, right. So, yeah, it was the host and the host committee that invited everybody to come. They're the people who can and should send a thank you note. So mm. it's nice if you could also sign the thank you note too. Yeah, yeah. You want to add everyone who came to your cell email list now. You should have a, a data a data bank that includes everyone you ever come in contact with. Always, always talk about that on the show, yep. And that will grow and grow over the years and, and pay you back, pay many benefits back. So uh, someone has to make 
that phone call. Ideally, it's a phone call or an in-person visit to everyone who came but did not give you support that night. Ah, okay. Now, on their pledge card, they might say, no, I don't want to give. You don't bother them again. You only send them a thank you note for coming. And you might ask if they want to continue to receive communication Mm -hmm. from you. Mm -hmm. But there will be a number of people who did not give, but did not say, no, I'm not going to give. And there are many reasons why that might have happened that night. So there's some people who just need time to think. That's kind of a personality trait. There are some people who need to go home and ask their significant other if they can make a a gift, a significant gift. And then there'll be some people who just want some more information. So that has to be sussed out with a phone call or a visit. Yeah. And someone has to be tasked with doing that. And the ideal person is the peer. Yeah. And that call will generate another 30% in gifts. Mm, Wow. Wow. And how about sort of a repeat customers, if you will, for lack of a better term, those who have donated to the film, do you see a percentage of those who then perhaps maybe continue to donate? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what I love about getting money from individuals. They will give and give again and give again mm. if if you treat them well. How do we treat them well? Talk to us about that relationship. Oh, well, there are two things. One is understand who they are. Every person is different. Do not broad brush your donees, mm. your donors. You've got to know who they are. You have to know what they like, what they want, what their needs are. And each, each of them will be treated differently. But one thing about the treatments that's true of all of them is your contacts with them should not be 99% asking for support. Right, right. It should be at least 75% just staying in contact with them, yeah. in communication with them, sending them e-blasts about your, your process, yeah. uh, keeping yeah. them uh, on your Facebook page, uh, inviting them out for a lunch occasionally where you're not going to ask them for money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, But if you do that, then you will be allowed to keep asking them. Uh, They will keep supporting you occasionally when you don't even ask for them. You want to open the opportunity for continued commitment and involvement. They love to be involved in somehow. And believe me, this works. You know, I have to say, Maury, uh, on two different uh, doc projects, uh, we held um, we held sort of a big live events that we put on um, a big fundraising live events that we put on for in in both instances. And I ha- and you know this a lot went into this. You know, we put together a volunteer team. You know, months yeah. and months ahead of time, a lot yeah. of time and energy and sweat, blood and tears and and resources went into it. Money went into it. And uh, on, in both cases, to be quite frank, the what yeah. came back was really uh, a modicum of what we put into it in many ways. And yes. uh, sure, we made a little bit of money, but it was nowhere near the time and effort that we put into to, to putting these events together. And I truly wish that I had 
uh, either known you and or had had this book in my hands, the <laughs> fundraising house yeah. party, because I feel like it could have saved me a lot of time and energy and effort, quite frankly. And what I would have gotten back in return would have far exceeded uh, these events that we put on. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I hear that in this discussion that we've just had. And, and obviously reading this book, um, I stand by it wholeheartedly. The book is The Fundraising House Party, and it's by Maury Warshawski. Again, we've had Maury on the program previously, as well as he held a, a live webinar event for us. I'd like to ask you, why did you decide to put this book together? And then what was the response of the book? I had to write it because no one else had. Yeah. When I started working with filmmakers, you know, way back in the day, I discovered the house party because a couple of filmmakers were doing it and they told me about it. And I realized it was a really powerful way to, to get money. Yeah. So yeah. much more powerful than fundraising events, which I agree often are disappointing yeah. and take yeah. too much time and you can lose some money yeah. on them. Yeah. You will yeah. never lose a dime on a house party. You might not make a lot of money, but you're not going to lose any mm -hmm. money. So what happened was uh, I realized that there was a science to it, a way to do it that would always work if you did it right. And no one had written about it. I know a lot about fundraising, and I looked through all the fundraising literature. And, you know, if you do that yourself, you will find a paragraph here, a paragraph there about doing a house party. Yeah. And yeah. in all the literature about fundraising. So I thought, why not have a little book that just deconstructs it, that shows people how to do it step by step. And it, it's in a second edition, so I guess it was, it's been popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I should yeah. say so. I should say so. And, of course, uh, we will have in the show notes for this episode uh, up on our website, thedocumentarylife.com, we'll have direct links to, to the book, The Fundraising House Party, as well as Shaking the Money Tree. But there is a way to also we can purchase these directly from you, can we not? Uh, yes, you can do two things. One is you can just go to my website, warshawski.com, W-A-R. S-H-A-W-S-K-I.com. And there's an order form there. You can order directly from me. Cool. Uh, but I will get give the listeners to your show a $5 discount. They can just email me directly and say, I want to buy the book. I heard the podcast and I'll send you a PayPal invoice uh, to buy it. Uh, and it's also available on, on Amazon. But the best ways to get it from me directly, I'll sign the book. And I, again, if you mentioned this podcast, yeah. I'll give you five bucks off. Yeah. Fantastic. And and can we just go to the website for that? Is that how we can contact you, Maury? Yeah. If you go to my Perfect. website, it has all my contact information, uh, including my home address. You can come visit if you want. Outstanding. <laughs> outstanding. I certainly still plan on doing that at some point. Maury, as always, what a pleasure having this conversation with you. Uh, you're one of my favorite people. Uh, that we talked to on the show. That's and, uh, right. It I means a lot that, that you would come on again. So, um, and, and the words of wisdom that you impart for, for doc filmmakers have always been very, very beneficial to our, to our audience. So uh, thank you so much for coming on again, Maury. And thank you. You do a lot for the field and we appreciate it. Don't forget, if you're interested in our free eight-part course, the Independent Doc Filmmakers Essential Checklist course, go to thedocumentarylife.com slash courses. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in two weeks' time, Doc Lifer.